You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thursday edition, Locked On NBA. David Locke along with Washington Post national columnist, Bubble Liver, Ben Golliver. We've got a lot of basketball to talk about. We've got some real life to talk about. There's a lot going on in the bubble. Uh, but Ben, I was thinking to myself today, wow, Ben Golliver has been in the bubble a really long time. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm hanging in there. I do think that uh, now that we're down to four teams and we're, you know, getting awfully close to just two teams, the bubble has started to feel a little bit like a ghost town. So when you walk around, there's just way fewer people. You do see the families more because the teams that are left did bring in, you know, kind of a second wave of uh, loved ones. So you see them around a little bit more, but otherwise uh, pretty much everywhere you go, it's just kind of crickets. It's it feels a little bit eerie. You know, we're kind of like the last people at the party, I guess is one way to put it. We're just kind of waiting for last call, but uh, I'm hanging in there doing pretty well. I got to say, I did get uh, the built bars came in today. So I'm oh. pretty excited about that. All right. I'm glad. Thank you very much. That's uh, there's your early plug for the podcast. There but, you go. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, the care package. Well, we do appreciate all you do. So we thought we should send you that. Um, I was going to ask you like, so at its peak, you had 22 teams. You had a bunch of people around. Now you got four. Like, how is it different? You weren't really allowed to go in the players' hotels from the beginning, if I remember correctly. You had that one dinner that was kind of in the Portland, where when Portland was moving in. How is the whole structure different? How is it different in the bubble now that there are so few teams? Well, um, the structure is pretty similar. Obviously, there were three properties that housed the players to start, and so now we're down to one property. And there were three gyms that we used for the games. Now we're down to one gym. So it's gotten very more, much, much more rep, uh, regimented, I guess, where we're just kind of going from point A to point B every single night. Uh, they're playing in that same gym. Uh, you know, in terms of where the players, uh, you know, are, they're all consolidated now into that, uh, the main hotel, the Grand Destino. And, uh, you know, we don't see a ton of them, to be honest. Really, ever since the playoffs got real, the second round, you started to see less and less of them on campus. Every once in a while, I'll see a guy like Duncan Robinson riding a bicycle or something like that. And we'll certainly see the coaches go out for their daily exercise. Um, you know, Eric Spolster, Brad Stevens are kind of notorious power walkers. But other than that, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a low profile. And most of those boundaries still exist. They have opened up some of the areas. So like the Disney gift shop, for example, I'm able to go into that now for the first time starting last Friday. We were never allowed in there previously. And there's a few other hallways and like a sports bar area that we now have access to that we didn't uh, you know, previously, but otherwise, you know, we're still under these same kind of coronavirus rules that the social distancing, the masks, um, you know, protecting the players, having them sort of within their own, um, their own bubble within the bubble. I mean, that's still definitely in effect. And you'll notice in a lot of the post-game press conferences, still players are wearing masks and doing everything they possibly can to, uh, to see this thing through to the finish line. You probably heard NBA commissioner Adam Silver's comments this week about not wanting to uh, take anything for granted about how his favorite emoji is the fingers crossed emoji. I think from their standpoint, until they've crowned a champion, they're still in that very vigilant state where they want to make sure everybody stays healthy. Big news out of Adam Silver that they want to play next year with fans in the crowd and that that's the priority and therefore they don't expect to start until sometime probably in January. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, it's not a surprise. I mean, the Players Union has been saying basically the same thing now for you know a couple of weeks, if not three or four weeks. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of people once this bubble is done who are just ready to breathe a gigantic sigh of relief and say, look, we need a break. 
Um, I'm probably going to be one of those people, to be honest. The idea of trying to turn this thing around by Christmas, it blows my mind. You know, I was in that gift store I mentioned, and I saw all the Halloween decorations. And when I got here, it was just after the 4th of July. So you can imagine <laughs> the kind of uh, the crazy time dissonance that was going on in my mind. And I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of the players feel the same way. Uh, you know, to me, the, the main push that I hear from talking to team executives, both in and outside of the bubble, they want to get back into their own arenas as quickly as possible. And in some cases, you can do that now legally, you know, based on local jurisdictions. Others, it's probably going to be a little bit more red tape. The longer that they wait into next year, the more likely it is they're going to be able, be able to open up most, if not all, of those arenas and at least have some, you know, uh, fan attendance as opposed to, uh, you know, full arenas. Whatever they can get, they, they view as a bonus. So I think from that standpoint, it's getting much less likely, if not you know, ruling it out, that would be back in another bubble for next season. And it does look like they're proceeding with this idea kind of along a similar path as baseball or maybe even football where you're going to have a modified schedule of some sort, um, you know, to allow for, uh, you know, these teams to be playing and, and practicing and, and potentially hosting fans in their home markets as soon as possible. Uh, have you heard anything? We'll get back to the games because they're good ones. Miami and Boston, Miami now 3-1, and then we've got game four of L.A. Denver tonight. But have you heard anything about what the word is on the cap and the tax and how much money they've lost. They already, you know, had lost about $60 million projected because of the China tweet. So that was a million dollars off the projections. Have you heard anything about what, like, the long-term impact of, the, you know, this has been very expensive. They're probably not, they're saving some money, but not a ton right now. Have you heard anything? Well, no, I mean, obviously we, what we do know is that they've made a lot of money back by having this playoffs work and not have to cancel games and everything else. So like the absolute worst case scenarios that they were looking at from a financial standpoint, had they not been able to do the bubble, um, were, you know, they've avoided that and that's good. Now, have they, you know, gotten where they would have been with the normal playoffs? Obviously not because they're losing at least 40% of the projected revenue during the playoffs because they don't have fans in the stands. So that's a big hit. Their hope with the cap is they, they can keep it as close as possible and just try to hold it flat, even if it's artificial. But they've got to negotiate this out with the Players Union, and the Players Union um, has been very willing partners to try to keep the game afloat. But, you know, Michelle Roberts told me a few weeks ago, look, the, the, basically the owners can't be greedy here. This has to be a win-win deal for all sides. They've got to make sure that um, if there is a short-term loss, you know, where next year there, there's still a hit that you're feeling from, the lost arena revenue from last year, that that gets shared properly, that that's not all like on the burden of the players. And, um, you know, I do think that the, the bubble being such a success gives both sides a lot of motivation to strike a deal quickly so they can get on with business. As far as I've heard, they're all on good terms and, and nobody's fearing like the worst, of, you know, some sort of a labor impasse, but they do need to go negotiate all those details out. You, you probably noticed they pushed back the anticipated day of the draft. Um, you know, by uh, more than a month from its original date. And they've also talked about pushing back next season's start, of course. Originally, they wanted to start that in, in early December. Um, those delays are to allow time for negotiations with the Players Union to figure out what next season looks like from my financial perspective. And they haven't really told us yet when free agency starts, have they? Correct. No, and free agency can't start uh, officially until after the draft. And that's the, the, the central part of these negotiations, right, will be the salary cap number, how much is available to free agents. You want to make sure you give a certain amount of time and leeway to agents and free agents and teams to 
have the types of typical conversations that go on to, you know, arrange those kinds of deals and they need to know the numbers. So that's going to be a pressing order of business is basically as soon as this season um, ends. And, uh, you know, Michelle Roberts, from talking to her, she did acknowledge there would be short-term pain, but she also thought that if you look at the long-term big picture for the NBA, the motivation for the owners to try to, you know, come to the table and, and fix this thing in the short term is there because once they're able to have fans back in stands, they, they anticipate the lead to continue to grow as it has for the last five, six, seven, eight years. And for those media right deals to still be, you know, hold their value and be strong. So uh, the way she's framing it as look, we've got to get over this hump, uh, you know, over, you know, the next 18 months or so. And maybe if that, maybe 12 months. And then at that point, uh, you know, the cash registers are, are rolling like normal. I have a very simple question about Miami and Boston for Ben Golliver. How's Miami winning games? We'll get to that in a second. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Ben Golliver now has 18 Built Bars in the bubble because I sent it to him. I used the promo code locked on. I got $10 off. I think I sent Ben the Built Box, which is 18 different flavors. Or you can build your own box of three different of your favorite. If I were to do that after today's caramel brownie, which I really liked, I might include caramel brownie. I'd probably do my mint brownie, and then that third choice would be tough. Do I do coconut? Do I do double chocolate? Do I do raspberry? And as I've said before, super impressed by the orange. What Ben Golliver is going to be most impressed by, well, other than the 100% real chocolate around the outside, is that compared to the leading men's bar, it's 120 fewer calories, three and a half grams of fat less, 34 carb grams less, 17 sugar grams fewer than the leading men's bar, and seven protein bars grams more do you have a freezer ben golliver i don't i have a fridge you don't have a fridge Holy no i have a fridge no freezer well fridge is good freezer's great for the built bar <laughs> that's the little hidden built bar secret go to builtbar.com use the promo code locked on tomorrow adam and anthony will be with you recapping game number four of that series and that's locked on nuggets and locked on uh, Lakers, so that's a great show. Make sure you grab tomorrow's Locked on NBA as well. I, I am so wowed by Boston's talent. I almost feel like I got to go back and watch these games to figure out how Miami's winning. How is Miami winning? Well, tonight Miami won because Tyler Hero bailed them out time and time and time again. This guy did not just score a postseason career-high 37 points. He scored it in tough, tough situations often isolation, often off the dribble, often late clock. I mean, this was a game where the energy level was not great for both sides. The offensive execution was not great for both sides. It was kind of tossed up there waiting for somebody to take it. And the youngest guy on the court, 20-year-old rookie Tyler Hero, was the guy who took it. Now, Boston's got some issues, I think, right now. They've got some weak links on defense. I mean, Kev, uh, sorry, Kemble Walker is definitely getting picked on down the stretch. And they've, they've had to kind of experiment with taking him off the court in some key moments. Miami has done a very good job of finding ways to isolate their best scorers on him and then basically go to work. And then Gordon Hayward as well. And there was a couple of baskets he gave up late where he's coming off of a long-term absence to injury. He's playing a lot more minutes than I expected. And a lot of people expected, um, you know, coming off of that injury situation and, you know, to me, it's not a major surprise that you've got this team in Miami that's kind of created this reputation for never folding late in game, for remaining strong and, and kind of, you know, powering through the finish line, <clears throat> being able to outlast a guy who's coming off a, a bum wheel for, you know, basically a month. So I, I think those were some of the issues for Boston. 
offensively, they were just way too cold to start. Tatum was absolutely nowhere in the first half. He turned it on, uh, especially in the third quarter. But they've had issues all series long executing in these late game moments. I mean, Kemba gets swallowed up. Uh, guys, you know, fall too much into isolation. Marcus Smart is a very willing shooter, but you know, if he's not on, he can be a really damaging presence to your half court offense. And um, you know, frankly, it was kind of a similar story that we saw earlier in this series. Miami was just much more rock solid, knew where they wanted to go, knew who uh, they wanted the ball in their hands, and had more successful offensive options. If it wasn't Hero, it was Butler. If it wasn't Butler, it was Goran Dragic. Uh, and I think that the play that really broke Boston was that corner three where they had been playing tough defense as tough as they could. The, a couple extra passes find scoring wide open in the left corner. He buries that three-pointer, and you could just kind of feel, um, you know, the exhaustion kind of pouring off of the Boston Celtics in that moment. Um, I think that, you know, long story, or long story short, like the short version of what I just said, Miami's been more stable and more trustworthy when it mattered. It's a great way to put it. Tyler Hero, by the way. So last year, I didn't watch any college basketball, not a single play, and never got to the time to go look through the draft. So all I did was run numbers on the draft, okay? And I looked at three different skill sets. Athleticism, which I looked at by looking at their transition percentage, percentile, their isolation. To me, that's athleticism. Can you beat someone one-on-one, and can you finish in transition? Playmaking was pick and roll and then pure shooting. Listen to these numbers. 87th percentile in transition. Only guys better were Jackson Hayes and Zion Williamson. Okay? Playmaking. Slightly different body types from here. Right, right. I mean, right. Come on. But that, like, should jump out at you, right? Like, Ru- of course. Rui Horshimura was similar. Um, who uh, uh, Alexander Walker was similar. And Kevin Porter Jr. was similar. Okay? Uh, pick and roll. Uh, for him. He was in the 98th percentile in pick-and-roll ball handlers. DeAndre Hunter, Zion Williamson were the only ones close. Okay? Pick-and-roll score percentage. He was the second best other than Zion Williamson and DeAndre Hunter. Same group. Shooting. Spot-up shooting. He was in the 70th percentile. It's not brilliant, but it's pretty good. Catch and shoot percentile. He was in the 47th. The only guy better was Cameron Johnson, who's a pure shooter, was good, better. Kobe White was better. And he, John Morant, other guys were all very similar to him. His catch and shoot unguardable percentage was pretty good. And then his cat, and then the last one was his ability to create. So shots off the dribble, 82nd percentile. Only guy better was Rui Horshimura uh, of all the guys out there. Like, how did this guy slip? Like, I, 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 I'll tell you another story about him later when I, we're off the air. But I ran the numbers. Like, this was my guy. And I didn't watch a single moment. There's no scouting value here. There's just pure numbers. Like, what did they miss? Well, I, don't, I think that, you know, it, it probably comes back to kind of, you know, the eye test stereotypes where you're looking at a guy who's pretty thin, who's pretty slender, uh, you know, who uh, apparently, as he mentioned tonight in his post-game interview, he didn't grade out so well on something like wingspan. Um, you know, I can imagine, you know, you get some of those combine numbers back and maybe, uh, you know, those start to count against him a little bit. Um, you know, and also there were some pretty interesting players towards the top of last year's draft, which, um, you know, maybe got uh, an outsized portion of the attention. He didn't have a gigantic body of work um, coming out of college where, you know, if, if he had maybe stayed two or three years, you could have expected him to be a, 
you know, to kind of uh, had his moment, his breakthrough moment. Um, the bottom line, it was great scouting by you and great scouting by the Miami Heat, right? Because they also trusted him very, very early on. And they, you know, they really rode him. You know, that's what the story Eric Spolster was talking about today in his post game was this idea of that, like, there wasn't some breakthrough aha moment where all of a sudden Tyler Hero became a guy who was going to go score 37 points in a, in a playoff game. It was really a matter of him just like never letting up all year long when it came to self-improvement. And that there were some moments where he really struggled early on, you know, the heat had kind of a bumpy season as well. There were some losing streaks involved, some rotation changes and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, hero winds up keeping his head above water, um, continuing to have the faith of the coaching staff, but also, you know, Jimmy Butler, who's kind of the alpha in that locker room, a guy who took him under his wing and all those things helped prepare him for this moment. But as Butler said, look, give Hero all the credit. He was the guy who was going out there and doing almost all of this stuff one-on-one in isolation situations with the pressure. This guy just doesn't feel it. I mean, that's the most incredible part about it. Um, you can definitely see guys really on all four teams that are left here at certain moments feel the weight of these conference finals. It's different because there's no fans. It's absolutely a weird experience. Um, and uh, everyone's kind of adjusting to it differently. But there's certain guys, especially the ones who feels like they've been playing basketball since they you know, were born, like the kind of the true ballers out there who are really thriving. I put Jamal Murray in that category, and I definitely put Tyler Hero in that category too. You know, December, probably 23rd, Utah, Miami, Donovan Mitchell, Tyler Hero go head-to-head down the stretch, and Tyler Hero won. Like, go back and look at that game, fourth quarter. They went head-to-head at each other. And Hero got the best of Donovan, defensively and off- offensively. Well, he just outdueled Jason Tatum too. I mean, right. flat out. And, and, and so he's he's got some uh, he's got some pretty impressive names on on the on the building resume there. And that's another thing that uh, Miami is is really trying hard not to heap too much expectations on what his future could be. But at the same time, they don't want to put a ceiling on him because they realize if you can do this at twenty, uh, you know, you're going to be a pretty special player at twenty five. How stunning is it to you if Miami represents the East in the finals? Very stunning. I mean, for sure. And especially if you go back to like before we got to the bubble, um, I thought that, uh, you know, talent and sort of like your, your regular season body of work would transfer pretty well. And that, you know, for the most part, this was a three team field. And we learned very quickly in the bubble that the, the, all of the contenders, the top three contenders, the Clippers, Lakers and Bucks had some vulnerabilities. The Bucks showed through very quickly, thanks to Miami. The Clippers showed through in the second round, uh, you know, thanks to Denver. And the Lakers at times have, have kind of shown some of that here and there, but done a pretty good job of papering over some of their issues with really high effort and um, intense connected defense. Um, but this has been a situation where, you know, the bubble has been unpredictable. There's been some incredible individual scoring performances from guys who we don't really expect. There are some uh, extended streaks of really quality play from guys who we've all written off, whether it was Jay Crowder or Dwight Howard or Rajon Rondo. I mean, some of these guys have really come through and played important minutes for their respective teams. And they're guys who were, you know, kind of afterthoughts. I mean, Crowder's like a toss into a trade. Rondo's on his sixth team in six years. Dwight's on his fifth team in five years. So, you know, it, it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind. I guess we put it that way. And, uh, you know, I think for Miami, the, the key has just been steadiness. Just about every single day, I see Eric Spolstra out there with his heat culture T-shirt walking around in the afternoon during the hottest part of the day. It doesn't matter if it's 95, doesn't matter if it's humid, doesn't matter if it's raining. 
he's out there every single day. To me, that kind of symbolizes, you know, the Heat always talk about Heat culture and, you know, putting in the work when no one else is watching. I guess in this scenario, I am watching because I'm out there walking myself. Uh, but it's just that steadiness, the even keel approach, the idea that, you know, you don't be the first person to quit. Don't be the first team to break. That's sort of been their mantras for a long time. And I think it happens to be perfectly suited to this NBA bubble. The zone. Why can Miami do it at a rate that nobody else does? Well, look, I mean, sitting courtside, that's one of the most impressive things uh, that I've seen during the bubble. Their zone has an awful lot of length, man. There's a lot of arms, and they close those passing windows quickly. I mean, it all sounds well and good. You send somebody to the high post, you enter it there, and you try to break things down with the ball movement, right? Um, Miami moves really well together defensively. They are They have really quick hands. A lot of guys who are good at just deflections, you know, uh, you know, knocking, breaking up passes before they get to their intended target. And then on collapsing on guys as well, um, if it's somebody who's not the world's best ball handler who winds up getting the ball in certain spots where they're not a scoring threat, they're really good at forcing turnovers. And um, they also just play super hard, and it helps that they do go a little bit deeper into their bench. Uh, you know, a lot of times now, I think they have been tightening up a little bit, but um, having that depth that you can go to, um, certainly helps. But I think another issue to, to keep in mind is that their superstars or their quote unquote superstars or stars in, in Bam and Jimmy are both defensive first guys. I mean, Jimmy came up as, you know, uh, a defensive stopper, you know, when he was 21, 22, um, 23 in his early years in Chicago, he was the guy who had to chase LeBron around for 45 minutes in a playoff game, right? Like that's sort of how he made his, his name. Bam Adebayo has been kind of a defense first guy and he's really explored his offense this year for the first time. So I think that helps them set the tone. It's like their main guys are bought in. You're not working around a superstar who needs to conserve energy for offense. Um, and I think all those things help. And also, you know, Boston's got a couple weak links with the shooters, right? I mean, Marcus Smart is a guy you can kind of dare to shoot. He might beat you some nights, but there's going to be a lot of nights he doesn't. Um, and then there's some other guys who do they really want those shots in the moment? Uh, do they trust it down the stretch of games? And I think some of Boston's youth and inexperience has started to show a little bit. And I think also the zone works pretty well against Kemba because, uh, you know, it, it just forces him to contend with, um, you know, arms everywhere he goes. And I think just a lot of times in this series, he's just gotten swallowed up. Yeah, we talked about it last week. I, I think the bigger passers is the biggest story in the league right now. How how. The best passers are big, and I think you, I, I really think this. Every, everyone's talking about the league taking getting rid of the centers. Uh, I actually think the league's getting rid of the six-one point guards. Like I know Donovan Mitchell's now a six-one point guard, but like you're going if you're a six-one point guard, I think you're with everybody else being six-six to six-nine on the floor. I think you're going to have to be so remarkably great that it's going to be almost impossible for people to stick around. Well, I coined uh, a new nickname for Nikola Jokic last week. I'm calling him the hypotenuse king because of the way his body, you know, his body is one side of the triangle, the court's the other side of the triangle. And when he has that ball up high, that water polo style pass that Scott Cacciola of the New York Times wrote about, and he's just shooting those downward passes to people's waist, to the cutters for layups, it looks like the hypotenuse of a triangle. So that's how I'm starting to visualize the height of the passer that you're, you're describing Pretty sure that nickname will not catch on, but I think for your dorkier listeners, they're going to be nodding their approval right now, Locke. All right, I got a hot take on the Celtics I'll give you, and then we'll talk about the Nuggets and the Lakers. 
I just see one piece of the Celtics I don't think fits long-term. I want your take on that. The uh, Today's show is brought to you in part by Rock Auto. So, Ben Golliver's a walker. He's probably he's not a he's not a rock auto guy, except for we're all rock auto guys. See, Ben doesn't remember this, but car this is the simplest version of it. I was talking to Luke uh Braun, our locked on NFL host and locked on Vikings host about this the other day. Like the simplest, simplest, simplest thing on your car, I don't know if you remember this, are called windshield wipers. Ben hasn't driven a car in a long time. You can't, <laughs> can't wait to drive mine. It's waiting for me. You you can actually like go to rockauto.com, plug in your car and find find your windshield wipers there. Like it's they've got everything. One of our other hosts was having a good time the other day just playing what he calls the Rock Auto game. He finds a random car in the year that it was made and searches and sees if Rock Auto has the parts and guess what he finds every time? Rock Auto has the parts. Best of all, the prices are reliably low and they're the same for professionals or do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much on the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car, your truck, the easy navigatable uh, catalog for you. So right, and when you check out, make sure you write locked on in the how did you hear about us section. That's amazing selection, reliably low prices, and it's rockauto.com. You know, I get like I, I'm not. I don't have to do like the ESPN dance where I'm saying this is not for aggregators because I'm not big time enough to worry about it. <laughs> I I just watch, and to me, Jalen Brown is too good for his role on the Celtics. Like he's not gonna sit in the corner and watch Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker take shots for the next two years. Like he's too good for that. He's He's the James Harden to Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, in my opinion. Well, he was absolutely sensational in game three where they were running more offense through him, or I guess I should say he decided that more offense was going to run through him, right? It was like, all right, I'm taking this ball. I'm putting my head down. I'm going to the basket. Let's force Miami's defense to adjust to me. That's honestly probably the best offense Boston's had all series long. So, um, his ceiling is definitely there. I don't necessarily love his playmaking ability or his drive and kick passing. I think it's kind of rudimentary there, but he's a very, very talented player. If you're Boston, I think your pecking order in terms of your assets goes one Tatum, one B Brown, and then everybody else, right? So if that means at some point Kemba's got to go, so there's more offense opportunities for Jalen Brown, I would understand that. I'm not predicting that this summer or this off season rather, or, anytime imminent but I think that first of all they developed him so they know how good he's gotten and that's number one and I don't think that they're taking him for granted organizationally like I think that they're in a spot where they they think we've got these two premier wings if we cycle the pieces around them for long enough it's eventually going to pay off yeah no I, I and I don't know how I think it would play out I mean I I just feel like he's too good, right? Like, I just don't see him wanting to be second fiddle forever. I mean, part of the Harden story was that they, you know, there are a lot of parts of the Harden story, right? Some reported, some not reported. There's all sorts of elements to it. But it was as though they didn't, you know, part of it was that Harden wasn't going to always be good to just be sitting as the sixth man behind Westbrook and Durant. He wanted his own franchise. Like, I think this guy might be good enough to have his own franchise. Uh, that one gets a little tricky for me. Um, the big difference there is that, you know, Harden, obviously, as soon as he hit the ground running in Houston, it was the, the premier scoring and playmaking kind of like right off the bat. And he had showed some flashes of that before he got there. 
with Brown, I think if it's like, hey, here's the ball, it's your offense, I'm not sure how well that goes. I'm not saying it's going to go terribly, but I don't know if it even goes league average if he's sort of like your lead playmaker, your primary guy. Um, And I also think that he and Tatum, they have a pretty nice personality mesh too, right? Like it doesn't feel like they get into the tug of war stuff that often. Now maybe it's because they're so young and maybe that's coming. And I, and I sort of think that's maybe what you're predicting. Um, to me, I think that the solution would be, um, you know, finding more guys who are, you know, kind of plug and play defensive pieces like three and D type guys. And then just, you know, turn, turn both Tatum and Brown a little bit more loose offensively and let them soak up those extra possessions you know, I think Kemba Walker's been such a better fit than like Kyrie Irving was last year for sure, but I'm not sure he's an ideal fit. If you can't play him at the end of a must-win playoff game for some stretches in the fourth quarter because of his defense, I think that tells you right there he's not an ideal fit. I was looking at B-ball index on Jalen Brown. He's, he's just to give people concept on him, uh, and part of the reason why I kind of believe what I'm saying is he was rated as a B-plus in isolation, which I was higher than I thought. His A rating, 93rd percentile in shots at the rim. This is compared to all wing, wing, 90 wing players. Overall finishing talent, he got an A. Pull-up three-point shooting's not great. I think that's very learnable. Catch-and-shoot three-point shooting's a B plus. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. His openness rating, which is their estimate of how many open three-pointers he gets, is a D. Like, he doesn't get open looks in their offense. He's not, like, for a third option, he's not actually getting looks off of other guys' activities. So, I don't know. Keep an eye on it. Yeah, I, I think part I think part of that is because when they do play with Tice, that gives you Tice and Smart, who you can not ignore, but, like, those guys are clearly fourth and fifth options on offense. So, like, you're you're pretty much hugging to Jalen in, in almost any situation if you're, if you're scheming against Boston. Like, you don't want to leave that guy open. Uh, because there are weaker options on the court. Lineup offensive talent that he's with, according to B-Ball Index, is a D-minus. Pretty interesting concept there. All right, so the idea that the Lakers could actually lose like four out of five games seems absolutely like 100% impossible until the Nuggets win tonight, and then we're going to be like, oh my gosh, and the <laughs> Lakers will be making diamonds, and the Nuggets will just be rolling. But it can't really happen, can it? I'm picking the like I think the Lakers in this series. I'm sticking with that. They have not looked very good for the last six quarters of this series. Um, you know, they looked sensational uh, in Game One, and Denver looked slow and out of sorts and overwhelmed in Game One. And it's that power of the first impression where everybody wants to say, "Okay, well, that's what this series is going to be." And that Game One was even less representative than lots of games Game Ones. Um, because, you know, Denver turned things around and the Lakers have uh, have not looked as hot. They've got to get more consistent scoring contributions from their supporting cast, and they've had these last couple of games. They've been very, very reliant upon Anthony Davis to do it all. He's capable of that, but if you're in a shootout with Anthony Davis and Jamal Murray right now, um, Jamal Murray's got a pretty long track record of winning shootouts, and so you're going to need to uh, maybe get a little bit more scoring balance if you're the Lakers. The other thing that I think people have uh, have kind of caught on to these last couple of games is both LeBron's minutes, but also his late game play. His minutes are at career low levels for the postseason. Even here in the Western Conference Finals, they have not cranked it up. And, you know, Frank Vogel said that's by design. They're trying to save him. They're trying to keep him fresh for as long as possible. But when you're watching these late game situations, LeBron's had a lot of turnovers. Um, He's had obviously some great plays, highlight level plays as well, especially during that big comeback in the fourth quarter 
of game three, but there's also been moments of clear fatigue. His shooting percentages, as David Thorpe outlined um, recently, drop you know, from, from the early in the games compared to late in some of these playoff games as well. So it's something to keep an eye on. The longer this series goes, the more taxing it will be on LeBron, the more he's going to have to step up. Now, to me, he's still the, the guy you would take over anybody else um, you know, in this particular matchup. But that gap is not as wide as I probably assumed coming into this series. And he's got a little bit of answering to do, I think, in some of these late-game situations where he's not getting the basket in the half court quite as easily. When he does settle for jumpers, his jumpers don't always look as good late in the game compared to what they look like, say, in the first quarter when he was coming out hot. So, um, you know, I think these are points of concern for the Lakers. Um, And the Nuggets are also just confident right now and settled in. I mean, you saw it with Jokic. He was really bothered by Dwight early in that series. Game three, it was like, all right, dude, you can dance around and say whatever you want to say. I don't really care. And, and Anthony Davis, you can play perfect defense on me. I'm still going to hit a 25-foot turnaround off one leg right in, right in your face. And same deal with Jamal. I mean, no answers for Jamal Murray defensively down the stretch. You know, bless Alex Caruso's heart. He got put on a, a number of highlight plays by Murray, whether it was the two three-pointers or that no-look pass to Millsap for the dunk, just a sensational closing, closing effort by Murray. So, uh, you know, you add all that up, it, we've got ourselves a series. And I'm glad, by the way, because, you know, after the first two games, I was getting nervous on Denver's behalf. Um, and it's good to know that their their fans' passionate, you know, requests for attention have been heard and, and by the players and by media analysts as well. I think everybody's now officially taking Denver pretty seriously. So I feel like this – after the Jazz played the Nuggets and they lost the first game, the Clippers, that that first game just didn't count because it was such a emotional 3-1 come from behind. I kind of feel that way about game one. Like, you know, and I look, there's two things that have me in the kind of wondering what's going on. So in game one, the Lakers, whose half-court offense was 19th in the NBA, ranked in the league, so not very good had a 121 offensive rating. Like, that's got to be one of their best half-court games they've had all year long. That's incredible. This is a team that lives in transition. And in their game, in game two, their offensive rating went back to being below league average, 97.8, not that impressive. They got out in transition at a decent amount, and they, they, they snuck away with a two-point win. In game three... Their offensive rating in the half court was even worse. And they got in transition a ton and lost. But their offensive rating in transition was now in the 34th percentile, was a 92.8. Flip side, Denver's has gotten better every game. And if we haven't learned this yet, as Jokic sees a team more and more, he leads it that two-man game. They get more comfortable. That's the those two trends have me thinking this thing could be two two. Um, I it's definitely possible. As Murray said last night, he thought it should be two one Denver, right? I mean, he's still just ruining that incredible shot by Anthony Davis. And what really bothered me about that game two performance from uh, the Lakers is that there were so many turnovers and so many complacent stretches from them. And you just don't want to see that from a team that's trying to win a title at this stage of the playoffs, right? This is the time to kind of put your foot on somebody's neck and kind of, uh, you know, finish this thing off. And and they just didn't really do that in game two, uh, unfortunately. So um, they're vulnerable. I I certainly could see this series going uh, deeper than I expected. I had, uh, you know, Lakers in six. And, uh, you know, after game one, everybody wanted to rush to the sweep talk or the Lakers in five talk. And, uh, you know, I think that Denver is incredibly well-focused. 
and they are not going to beat themselves. I mean, they're going to play hard. They're going to force you to beat them. And uh, that's what you want from a team that's been here and kind of cheated death so many times already in the bubble. Um, you know, as Michael Malone said, for whatever reason, they just love it here. They're feeling at home, and, and they don't want to go home. I mean, they're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Ben Golliver, he doesn't want to go home either, but he'll actually get to it at some point. But first, he has 18 <laughs> built Bars to eat. Very much a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for your bubble insight. I do want to mention, we didn't mention, I planned out, we've run out of time. The Breonna Taylor story is real in the bubble. Um, Malik Andrews was unbelievable. Scott Van Pelt tonight on ESPN broke down. Uh, I think it showed how real that is, um, how much that's impacting people. I don't mean to ignore it on the show today. Honestly, we just kind of ran out of time. So, uh, But quickly, just th- that had to be very real and very much uh, on everyone's forefront today. We heard, we heard about it from basically every player and every coach who uh, took uh, an interview today from all four teams, whether it was at the practice for the Lakers and the Nuggets or from the game from the, the Celtics and Heat. Um, you know, Jimmy Butler called it BS. Um, you know, Jalen Brown spoke eloquently about it. Tyler Hero explained why he's been wearing Black Lives Matter on his jersey uh, because he, he sees something systemically wrong in the country. Lots of very profound thoughts from a number of different voices, and, and we've been covering it at the Post. So if people want to know what the players said, um, you know, check out the Post on um, Thursday morning. You'll be able to read all about it. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. I'm David Locke. Thank you very much for tuning in. Make sure you get tomorrow's Locked on NBA as well with the Nuggets and Lakers recap with the two local experts on this story. Have a great day. 